What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Ho, ho, ho. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Santa Stay. <laughs> I'm Mark DeVoe and uh, I'm going to go and buy Mark some tunes now for his throat <laughs> after that Santa Sound more like Brian Blessed actually. It was, that was absolutely yes. brilliant. I absolutely loved that. And I'm Mark DeVoe and welcome to the episode before Christmas, folks. As you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, you will see that Mark and I are fully, fully decked up in our best Christmas gear. And in fact, um, I do gear. believe, Mark, <laughs> I do believe I have, I've won the worst worst christmas jumper competition you have actually won the coolest christy it's not fair you've shown up i thought we were going to do like (laughs) ugly christmas sweater theme here give us a 12 coolest do you want to give us a 12 for everyone there well uh, well, mine is my well the hat is my wife's uh and it says hashtag elfie i don't know why um i don't actually have a proper santa hat and then i've got my darth vader uh i i find your lack of cheer disturbing sweater (laughs) Um, which I've had for some I, years. Uh, this is, really? you know, this is my only Christmas gear. This is my, there is actually, there's an, uh, I've got underneath this a Christmas t-shirt, which if I get too hot, I might have to strip off oh down to, which has an attack. Okay, folks, get your antlers. patrons, <laughs> get your patron pledges in folks and we'll get Mark to take off his Christmas sweater. Yeah, people will be paying for me to keep it on. Oh, well, maybe, maybe we could do that. Uh, whereas at my end, Mark, and I must say why I never, why I never even, realised that you, of course, would have a Star Wars ugly Christmas sweater. Well, not ugly, of course, but, yeah. you know, obviously. But what I've got, you see, this is genuinely ugly and I literally can't stand it, <laughs> which I think is the whole point of an ugly sweater. But I'm just, I'm going to do a reveal here for everyone. You can't see me doing it right now because I'm in front of my microphone. But I'm going to stand up, check out, check this out. This. Whoa. This, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? And if That's, we turn to the right, look, it's actually... Well, it's actually it's a penguin, folks. How do you describe this to people listeners, listening to this listeners, podcast? Listeners, this is um, it's a little penguin, and the penguin looks uncannily like Mr. D. It's even got the same glasses, uh, and it's got a little green dicky bow, and it's simply adorable. Um, so I don't think it's ugly at all. I think it's very oh. sweet, and at least you can hear because uh, with these this elfy hat on, it's got these little Yoda ears at the side, and it's sort of the the headphones for the podcast aren't quite over my ears, so uh, I might be going what. Hey, what? Throughout the the whole podcast, so apologies in advance, listeners. Oh, but a merry hilarious. Christmas, a merry Christmas. This is, as Mister D said, the the last episode before Christmas, uh, and it's um, you know, so it's uh, it's we're in the festive mood, and our, one one of the reasons we're dressing up is our guest today put on a Christmas sweater as well. So uh, we thought we might make a, an effort. Absolutely, I love this time of year. I love this time of year. For me, if 
if uh, if I don't if I don't get into Christmas early December, it just seems to vanish, and then I kind of wake up on Christmas Eve and think, oh no, oh, I'm so busy presents. preparing for it. <laughs> it's a bit like it's a bit like that kind of crazy thing, like when people go on holiday and they spend so much time preparing and stressing and buying things for their trip that they don't actually enjoy the trip. And then the thing, the overriding thing I always get the end, like kind of waking up boxing day, it's like, oh no, oh, and it feels like it's over before it even started. So this year, mm. this year I've got in the spirit, I had all my Christmas presents sorted end of November. That was awesome. Well, and well uh, partly because of the supply chain issues over here in BC, yeah, I don't know if you've heard, yeah. Man, it's been bad here. We had same here, same here. We had uh, yeah, we had sinkholes though in our in our um, highways from a massive oh rainstorm back at the end of November, and it cut all the supply chains off because like literally trucks couldn't get through to places. I know that happened in the UK, didn't it, with um, with supply chain issues? But this was like physically roads disappearing because oh. of this. <gasps> well, our, prob our problem is we don't have enough drivers and everything's in the wrong place. Yes. So uh, I was talking to a friend uh, about a um, couple of months ago, before Christmas really kicked off, and she works for a publisher, and she says, there isn't a shortage of paper. It's just all in the wrong place, and there's no not enough uh, cardboard for hardcovers. So she said, if you see a book, buy it now. You know, don't wow. hesitate. So it's, Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about how that would affect books, actually, but that's yeah. Uh, yeah, another yeah. crazy uh, – well, I mean, in some ways, at least we've got the fallback plan of uh, – of um ebooks <laughs> yeah. it's kind of weird isn't it it's kind of weird as you see things all start to like go off the rails literally book tokens book tokens book tokens get a book, book in the january sales yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. So, so what do you do mark what's your what's your prep for christmas what do you most enjoy looking forward to do you have any traditions in your family well christmas because our daughter is uh born at the beginning of december we tend to wait until um, that's out of the way to make her day, you know, as fun as it can be. And then usually the weekend after the, the decks go up uh, and we, we always have a plastic tree, never get a real tree because everyone I know who gets a real tree gets lurgy over Christmas because real trees, once you put them inside and you turn on central heating, spores go into the air and they all get <laughs> lurgy, right? So uh, did you yeah. realise though? There's about three million people currently listening to this, going, "Oh yeah, no, oh, what? What yeah. am I going to do? I'm going to yeah. die." You'll well, I've never year. got sick over Christmas, and we actually cut. Mm. Get this, right? Living in beautiful BC, the on Queens on the Queens uh, Crown land, they call it over here. You're allowed you're stealing Christmas trees off. No, the Queens. you don't steal. The common <laughs> the common plebs are allowed to actually by by directive that you can actually go and cut one tree a year it's like some really old oh. yeah and literally we live in the middle of a forest here where i am and i can i mean i actually last year i cut a tree down on our property um because it was actually in the way and so <laughs> that, but it was it was crazy it was crazy big and and this year i've been eyeing up one across the road so but you have to fill out a piece of paper you can't just go right. and chop you know you have yeah. to but yeah so we, we're very lucky in bc and i mean on the west coast it, it's like it, it's one of the kind of logging capitals of the world um you have to actually be really careful when you go into the ocean uh, if you're ever on a boat or something because you can come across like a you know a 20 foot tree just floating that yeah. escaped from yeah. one of those big i don't know what they're called but it's where they they pull all the logs together in the water have you seen that where yes they kind of i do remember i remember that from a program that was on telly when i was a kid and the opening title was all these logs on water and yeah. being very captivated by that i can't remember what the show was occasionally um, the log yeah. escapes which is not good for um water skiers and uh <laughs> <laughs> 
unintended no. jumps. But yes, we have, we're allowed to go and get a Christmas tree. And, uh, uh, but one of the other traditions that I love and I always do is I always get advent calendars for the kids. Uh, that's always a kind of exciting we've, we've, with we've, chocolate. Claire, Claire gets Claire gets me a chocolate. Advent yeah, chocolate one. So yeah, we got one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The kids yeah. don't get yeah. me one though. I, I buy them one every year. I don't, <laughs> and they don't share. <laughs> they never share. But anyway, I have to. I have to. Just, I just go and buy a massive bar or something else. Just hide it away in my room and uh, like eat it like you know Billy No Mates. But um, <laughs> another one, uh, Quality Street tin that goes back. But I will say, sorry, folks in the US, the Quality Street over here. It's not the same. It no. doesn't taste like British chocolate. North American chocolate isn't the same as British chocolate. Because they've got, because Cadbury's yeah. was taken over by uh, Kraft, which yes. is a big American company. And they bought, now we all have, we now have all the kind of like the different chocolate bars and things. Um, but it's it's not the same. No, there's there's something about oh, I forget what it is. There's something, there's it's something the cocoa. Sh- it's the yes. cocoa or the sugar. It's much milkier but- in England. Yeah, which is really yeah. what I grew up on. I mean, I think I think maybe my mum fed it to me when I was very young because I just can't. I, it just doesn't do the same. <laughs> no, no. It's a, well, when I when I worked uh, uh, in an office, you know, you'd get people who'd bring in what Australian Tim Tams, which are basically penguins, or they yeah. bring in uh, you know um, Reese's, not um, Hershey. Hershey squirts, uh, Hershey drops, Hershey chocolate, <laughs> and it's all kind of powdery and yeah, dry, and it's just not. Yeah, it's not patch on, on kind of proper milk chocolate. Yeah. Uh, so Americans, you're gonna have to, you know, sort that you have out. Have a game, guys. Seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. honestly. Yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, but um, but we we do now get hobnobs imported, so I'm I'm all, I'm all good. I'm nice. all good. And nice. chocolate Very digestives. Good. But we digress because partly this is a little bit of a warm up <laughs> for our Christmas special next week, isn't it? Where we are going to be talking about. Uh, our favourite Christmas books that we got growing up as kids, and we'll also throw in a few of our favourite presents. But we also have had um, a lot of people responding on oh, social fantastic. media. It's going to be a good one, folks. So join us next week for a little bit of Christmas cheer, our official Christmas episode, uh, where we'll promise that we'll be dawned up. And I might even have baubles on the tree just outside the window, if you like. Um, <laughs> but Mr. Stay, let's let's dive into our Christmas our Christmas uh, author this year. This is a wonderful story. Uh, Mia Kutznia. Tell us about Mia. Mia Kuznia spent six years living in Spain, teaching English, travelling the world, and it inspired her children's book series, Ship of Shadows. But she's written a, a debut novel for adults, Midnight in Everwood. And this is like a big Christmas hug, this book. Uh, it was inspired by her love of ballet and love of the Nutcracker, the Nutcracker Suite. So, uh, yeah, we had a lovely conversation about that. We talked about moving from middle grade books to adult books, uh, writing lean first drafts, and how she was inspired by her extraordinary grandfather. Brilliant stuff. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Mia Kudznia. Mia Kuznia, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm great, thanks. How are you? My pleasure and a Merry Christmas to you. Uh, season's greetings and all that malarkey. Uh, so I see you even have a Christmas jumper on. So, uh, you know. For- I do, yeah. So, uh, listeners, uh, just to let you in on a little secret, we are recording this towards the end of November. So uh, you're way ahead of the game there, Mia. 
<laughs> I do love Christmas. I start feeling very festive this time of year. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, it's, it's weird. I've been talking to a lot of people about this. People are really embracing Christmas this year. I think really early. I think it's you know that whole thing of let's put last Christ- the last two Christmases behind us and just you know in really really enjoy this one. And what better way? What better way, folks, than to enjoy your Christmas than snuggling up with a copy of Midnight in Everwood with I imagine a lovely big hot chocolate with some marshmallows on top and some sprinkles in your favourite reading nook because this book is just it's just designed for this time of year it's absolutely gorgeous but um, Mia do please tell us more about Midnight in Everwood sure thank you okay so Midnight in Everwood is a retelling of the Nutcracker and it's set between Edwardian Nottingham in 1906 and then this fantasy world of the Nutcracker which is all frozen sugar palaces and snowy forests and moose-drawn sleigh. And it starts when our main character, Marietta Stell, who wants to be a ballerina more than anything in the world, is being forced to give up ballet due to her position in society and her rather strict, overbearing parents. But then a new mysterious neighbour moves in down the street called Dr. Drosselmeyer, And things start to take a very strange, wonderful, a little bit dark at times, but very magical turn. Fantastic stuff. And this comes from your own love of ballet, does it not? And the Nutcracker. Yes, that's right. I do love ballet. I have to confess, though, I'm not very good at it, (laughs) but I do love it. And I actually go to ballet classes here in Nottingham every week. So that was a big part of the inspiration. And anything like that, it doesn't matter if you're any good at it. It's just, do you enjoy it? Does it make you feel happy? Does it bring something out in you? And I presume that's something you want to convey in the storytelling. Oh, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think sometimes it's quite refreshing to have a hobby where you're not that great at it because it takes all the pressure off. You just, you know, you do it for fun. You have a laugh. You meet some friends. It's it's all good fun. Excellent stuff. And the Nutcracker, I mean, this is... um, this is a story that's endured for a very, very long time. What do you think the appeal is? Why do people keep coming back to it, either for inspiration in your case or for retellings? Uh, what is it about the Nutcracker that makes it so special? I can't speak for other people, but I think for me, I love that the way it kind of marries ballet and Christmas. And it's a very kind of feel good, magical, enchanting ballet. And I think this time of year, there's just something about going to see a performance of it that just makes you feel like a little kid again, you know, dreaming of all these lands of sweets and nutcrackers coming alive. (laughs) It's very atmospheric. Fantastic stuff. And the book itself is very atmospheric. Now, presumably with something like this, you might be writing some of this in the boiling heat of the summer, you know, when you're doing rewrites or drafts or whatever. How do you get into that, that wintry frame of mind? I have to confess, I was playing Christmas music in (laughs) July, some of the months that I wrote the book. I think I would absolutely love a world where I could write, you know, I could write a Christmassy book and it's snowing outside, or I could write a summer book in the heat instead of in the winter, but it doesn't really work that way, as you know well, I'm sure. So I find I like to just kind of get in the mood for it with things like looking at my Pinterest board or listening to music or maybe having a hot chocolate, um, even if it is under the fan in summer, (laughs) just to put you in the right frame of mind. 
Now you you are on Twitter as uh, and Instagram, I think, as Cozy Reader. Is that correct? Is is that is that coziness important to you? Oh, definitely, yes, yes. I'm Cozy Reads on Instagram and the Cozy Reader on Twitter because someone unfortunately got there before me. <laughs> but yes, I love the whole coziness, and I love visiting cold countries as well. I think that's I just oh I just love everything about it. <laughs> Curling up with a good book and. Under a nice fluffy blanket and yeah, all of it. <laughs> Listeners, do do check out Mia's Instagram. It's one of the most comforting Instagrams I've seen. It is just like a warm blanket and it is just filled with absolutely gorgeous books. Now, with, with Midnight in Everwood, you're moving uh, to a slightly older readership. Your, your first two books, uh, Ship of Shadows, Secrets of the Stars, they were more middle grade. This is this is switching, and you're changing publisher as well. I'm always interested in the conversations that led to that. In what, why, why, why the decision to to sort of shake it up with this book? Well, I find for me it was a very natural kind of process. It wasn't a big decision or feeling like a big change or anything. It's more just I've always had so many ideas. I'm a big ideas person. And there's so many ideas for books I want to write. So having kind of multiple avenues where I could pursue writing these stories and getting these stories out into the world always felt like a really good decision for me personally. Okay. Um, were there any particular challenges in in moving up in that age category? Not particularly, I don't think. I've been very lucky so far that my schedule's aligned quite nicely. So I've never been drafting two different books at the same time or editing two different books at the same time. I think my brain might explode if I tried to do that. Um, so I, time, I kind of shift between them for a, a few months at a time. So so are there, are there more middle grade books on the way? Is this something you're going to be moving between as, we, as you move forward? Oh, yes. I definitely want to carry on writing middle grade as well as adult. I like to think of it as I write adventure stories for children and fairy tales for adults. And I love both adventures and fairy tales. So this is perfect. I want to do both for as long as I can. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. I'd like to talk about where it all started. And uh, as I understand it, it might have, you might have been inspired by your grandfather who used to tell you the most extraordinary stories of his life. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that's true. Um, my grandfather was very, very close to me and he grew up in uh, Poland just before the Second World War. He was a child there, um, right in the eastern edge of Poland, which isn't even Poland anymore now. It's the Ukraine mm. where he was from. But yes, when he was a child, he was taken by... Russians in the middle of the night and kind of taken by horse-drawn sleighs and then packed into cattle wagons into camps in Siberia and then years and years later they were liberated by the British army and they kind of followed General Anders through kind of Central Asia and into, through the Middle East and into India where they lived for six months and then they got ships across to different countries in the south of Africa. He was actually in Uganda living on the banks of um, Lake Victoria for quite a few years, living in mud huts and, you know, watching. I mean, he actually even saw a boy being eaten alive by crocodiles and he made his own boats and, and just incredible stories like that of this childhood that was obviously very difficult, but also very adventurous for a child in some ways. And then, yeah, eventually they... They left Africa and came to the UK as refugees. 
Blimey. I mean, did he, he would tell you these stories. Did he ever consider writing it down? Did he ever think about writing his own story himself? No, he wasn't a very uh, bookish person. He was a very practical man. He loved being outside in the nature, going fishing, gardening, things like that. So he would tell me these stories. And obviously he would emit some of the kind of harder and more difficult things because I was just a child when he was telling me. So he very much focused on the kind of the adventure of it and you know, the things that a child would find more interesting of his life in Africa and Russia and how he used to um, refuse to go to school as a child in the camp in Russia. And they used to try and make him sit in the classroom, but he used to climb out the window and up a tree to get away and things like that. And I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I was just enthralled by all these stories and I've always loved traveling and yeah, maybe it came from there or maybe I love the stories because I love traveling. I'm not sure, but the two have always been very entwined for me. Yeah. There's, um, well, I mean, what an incredible life. And I can see, you know, draw a direct line from his stories to your, your adventures. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, what was his name? We, we always love to get the names of inspirational, uh, the people who inspire our writers. Uh, in English, it was Edward Kuznia. Edward, we salute you, sir. Um, and also, I, I heard that your early career was boosted by a special sparkly sticker from the head teacher. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it was a creative writing class in, um, yeah, I think it was in year four, Mrs. Cordwell's class. And we were doing English and what were we writing? I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was something kind of snowy or wintry or I just got really really into it <laughs> I've always loved descriptive writing even back then and yeah the teacher was impressed with my writing so she sent me to the head teacher to get an extra special sticker for my work and show her my writing and you know I was really nervous walking down the corridor to the head teacher's office because I was only in year four so you know it's quite young and I was sent by myself and I'm kind of knocking on the door of her office and she probably thought I'd you know gone there because I was in trouble or something but um no once I explained she was ever so lovely and gave me a really nice big shiny sticker always love stickers I still do love stickers actually sometimes I use them to reward myself when I've written so many words on a draft oh fantastic oh we love that we're always interested in how authors reward themselves for for eating landmarks <laughs> where did it where did it go from then was that were you sort of constantly making things up writing stories or or sometimes we find some that sometimes there's a gap where people rediscover their writing was it just something that you always did Yes, definitely. It's something I've always done for as long as I can remember, making up stories. And my mom still has some of my few very, very early, well, I was going to call them works. They're not really works, really. They're kind of little scribblings down that I've kind of done with like little colouring pencil drawings by the side. It's just something I've always loved. Yeah, always wanted to do it. Was there, was there a point though where you thought, actually, this is the thing I want to do? Or was there a point where you thought, uh, you know, I could make a career of this? Several times I really wanted to make a career out of it. Obviously, that takes quite a bit of time to put into action. But I've had a few points where there's been kind of a natural break in between jobs that I was doing at the time or where I was living. And I had the opportunity to take a little bit of time off to kind of write and invest my time in trying to make it happen. 
And the most, the biggest break I got for that was when I left Spain about five years ago and came back to the UK, to Nottingham with my husband. Um, we moved to Nottingham because he found a job here that was really good in a school that he really liked the look of. But I didn't really have anything. So it was kind of the perfect time to take some time off while I still had, you know, savings that I could live off. And obviously my husband was working and just really try and make something happen. So we we spoke for a long time about it. And I, in the end, took 18 months off to just write full time and just try and make something happen. And I queried one book along the way. And then I queried The Ship of Shadows towards the end of that. And right on the last day when I was sort of trudging around, handing my CV out, I got an email from who is now my agent who wanted to take me on. Amazing. Let's talk about, I'd love to talk about that period because it's the thing that a lot of people dream of is having a chunk of time where they can really apply themselves to this. And you mentioned a first book there that I suspect didn't get picked up. But going into that period, did you have a whole bunch of ideas to choose from? Were you focusing on one particular book? What was your your game plan as you were going into that period? Yeah, I had an idea for a book. It was actually a retelling of Robin Hood. It was a YA one, but no, it didn't get picked up. It did get some interest though, which was enough to make me feel like I was on the right path. I wasn't just fooling myself that I could maybe hopefully do this. Yes, I found that having, obviously I know I was very privileged to be able to have that chunk of time off, but I really, really needed that. Before that, I was teaching and I kept trying to write, but I just I just couldn't do it at the same time as teaching. I was just too exhausted by the end of the day and it just it just didn't work for me. I've since realized I need long periods of time and kind of peace and quiet and being by myself to be able to write whole books at the time. So yeah, I did have a lot of ideas and I kind of went through them one by one. There are a few other kind of half drafts or rough drafts I've still got that I kind of wrote and you can see my skill kind of evolving as I was writing them but I didn't ultimately decide to polish them up and query them. The second book I seriously queried was Ship of Shadows. Fantastic. Were you aware of a kind of deadline or a ticking clock? Had you given yourself, like you mentioned, 18 months, was that the sort of deadline that you gave yourself to sort of make or break this? Yes. Yes, it was. And then I thought, hope if it didn't happen, I would find a job, work for a few years, kind of try and save up some more money and see if I could hopefully further down the line, have some more time off or see if I could find a job that I would be able to write with. Um, I was kind of fuzzy on what came afterwards. But yeah, I was very set on just that 18 months. And what was your daily routine? Was this, I mean, you know, like you say, you you were previous, I think you were teaching English in Spain, weren't you? Which, as you say, is an all encompassing job. Were yeah. you treating your writing like a job? Were you sort of clocking in, doing so many hours a day or so many words a day? Yes. Yes, I did treat it like a job. I took it very, very seriously. And I put a lot of time and effort into kind of dedicating it because I was very aware that I was very, very lucky to have this opportunity to do it. And I really wanted to make it happen. So I was highly motivated. So I mentioned before, my husband still teaches now. He's a primary school teacher. And I kind of keep the same hours. So when he goes off to work, I kind of get up, get ready and sit down to write for the day. 
and I have my evenings off. Obviously, we spend our evenings together, which is really nice. And I try and have weekends off. But if I'm obviously in the middle of something or a mm. deadline, it doesn't always happen. But yeah, I do treat it like a job. Do you sort of target yourself with a daily word count or or, or anything like that? I tend to measure the time I've spent working instead of the word count because I write very lean and kind of pad it out as I go along in later drafts. So for me, measuring word count doesn't always equal the amount of work I've done on something. And sometimes I just need thinking time or plotting time. And sometimes you need to cut words instead. So I feel like for me, measuring my word count isn't the best kind of approach. That's really interesting that you write really lean in the first uh, instance. Is that uh, are you sort of plotting much ahead or are you just jumping in and pencing the, uh, a first draft and getting it down and then putting meat on the bones? I do plot. I plot quite a bit, but I don't plot to such details that I know everything that's going to happen. So I always know the beginning of the book, the end of the book, and kind of the stops I want to take along the way. But um, I always leave a little room for a few little surprises in case I want to suddenly explore a different avenue or if a new idea occurs to me, that happens quite often. But yes, I write very lean. So my draft is kind of half prose, half bullet points, I would say. Right. So it's it's very, very lean. I think the first draft of Midnight in Everwood was only something like 25,000 words. It had huge gaping holes in it. And then I go over it in the second draft and, you know, it goes up to like 50, 60,000 words where I'm filling in those gaps. And I find doing that is really useful for me because when I've gone over it again, I've already seen the shape of the whole story. So I find I'm better equipped to fill in these holes and I know what needs to happen there because I know the characters better now. I've spent a whole book with them and you know, I've reached the end and I've seen what other things need to go into it for it to go through to the end, if that makes sense. I know more about it. (laughs) Absolutely. No, it's it's a sort of process of exploration and getting to know the world and the characters and where they're going. And then you can really dig in and and have fun with them. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. That's that's much better than what I said. (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm I'm also really interested in the things that inspire you because I, I see you use Pinterest uh, for mood boards beforehand. Where does that come in? Is that when you're first trying to get ideas together for a project or is that something you do as you go along? Uh, no, it's something I do up front and before I start writing the draft usually. I'm a very, very visual person. So Pinterest really appeals to me because you have like this visual mood board of the the aesthetic of your book and that's actually what comes to me first is my settings a lot of authors say you know they have plot or they have characters come to them first but for me it's always settings I'm very inspired by the places I visit the the countries I travel to and that's what I get an idea for first I think oh I really want to set a book here or this country is amazing I want to write a book that's set there and then I start looking on Pinterest and then I start thinking about who can kind of populate this story and what shape the story is going to be but yeah I'm a very visual person so Pinterest is great for me it's a really useful tool excellent so are you are you a notebook person as well are you constantly scribbling in notebooks oh yeah I love a good notebook (laughs) do you have some sort of 
organization to your notebooks? Do you have like a notebook for each project or do you just scribble in, in them in a random fashion? I have a notebook for each project and the notebook has to kind of match the project. So <laughs> every time I have an idea that, you know, I've run past my agent or whatever and she's been like, yeah, go for it. Then I know it's time for a new notebook. So <laughs> <laughs> then comes the notebook shopping trip, which is very, very exciting. And I go out sort of hunting for a notebook that will match the kind of aesthetic and feel of my story. Fantastic. After Midnight in Everwood, will there be more adventures in this world or are we going back to the world of Ship of Shadows? What's what's coming next from you, Mia? Okay, so my next book for adults with HQ Stories that's following Midnight in Everwood is in the same vein and it's in the same world, but it's a very different story, different characters, everything. It's another standalone book and it's going to be like Swan Lake meets The Great Gatsby. Which I'm very excited about. Wow, that is a great. We we love a great X meets Y pitch, and that's a fantastic one. Superb <laughs> stuff. Well, we really, really look forward to that, uh, folks. Midnight in Everwood is out there right now. Uh, get your hot chocolate, get your cocoa, whatever it is your your beverage of choice. Curl up with this book and have a fantastic Christmas, Mia. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, and hope to speak to you again soon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Now, I've got to say, Mark, I'm not the biggest ballet fan. In fact, the only the only reference I have to ballet in my life is Paul Hogan's uh, uh, advert on TV. What was the beer? Forex. You... Well, I know he's Foster's. Right. Well, he's Foster's. Foster's, wasn't he? Yeah, where he yeah, says, yeah, yeah. Struth, there's a, there's a guy with no strides on. <laughs> but I must admit, I do, I do, I, I did love to hear the story about the Nutcracker. I think it's, it is a very, um, it's a very, warm, close thing to many people's heart. And then a lot of people go and watch ballets don't they around this time of year a sugar plum fairy it's it's posh people pantomime Um, (laughs) now claire did claire did ballet and um when we first started dating i spent an awful lot of money going to see swan lake at covent garden (laughs) and she loved it i don't get it um but i appreciate people who do i mean i mean it is extraordinary The, the you know forget rugby players you want physical oh. fitness ballet dancers and what they go through i mean yeah. you know you watch a movie like black swan and it's a horror movie because of all the horrors that you know that <laughs> you know the feet and the shoes and their back i mean claire's basically screwed up her legs because oh. of the, all the ballet she did as a child i must you know, admit so, yeah i've yeah. heard i always remember the the i was always fascinated to hear that the uh, former captain of england football team slash soccer team um is was Rio Ferdinand and he was a ballet dancer up yeah. until he became a professional footballer and he said the strength that it gave him was mm. utterly mind-blowing um so I have incredible respect I don't know oh, how yeah. they do it I yeah. honestly don't tough know how as they do nails. it yeah tough yeah. as nails yeah but yeah. um but it is fascinating isn't it because I think you know ballet tells a story and the Nutcracker is a classic and mm. uh and and I think for you know I mean the other thing for me just as a quick aside you spent hours watching Swan Lake. I spent thousands buying little dresses for my daughter for her <laughs> for her one performance, right? Where they, you know, they'd hire this big theatre, yeah, proper theatre, yeah. and it would be like it'd be like you know forty quid a ticket, and then you'd be paying like a hundred quid for their little 
sugar plum outfit. And yeah. my, I remember yeah. my daughter, she was five years old once and all these girls walked on stage and they all stood there and one, the one obligatory boy, bless him. Um, they were all standing in a line and none of them could remember what to do. And we just mm. sat there as parents going, oh my gosh. And then my daughter, who was the leader of the pack, decided just to flap her arms and start running around the stage and they all just followed her for like two minutes and that was the performance. It was brilliant. absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> That was that's, the, that's the devote quid. child taking charge. <laughs> exactly, it was totally that moment. But anyway, funny ballet stories aside, um, I, I think it's amazing. The thing that really jumped out for me in, in this interview with Mir was this idea of writing lean. Yeah, and I've not it. really heard that expression before. I don't think we've ever talked about that on the podcast in any detail, have we? Well, I, I tend to do it now, particularly as I'm doing more pantsing. Uh, my first drafts tend to be quite thin and then i you know in rewrites i will add meat onto the bone um so it's something i'm doing more and more of and i find it um it really helps to sort of whiz through to the end and then you've got the shape of something and then you can step back from it and figure out what it's actually about so I, i've been doing that with the last couple of books certainly and uh you know it's it's interesting because we had the opposite of that of michael Connolly a few weeks ago where he said his first drafts he does tend to rush through them but they tend to be over long and then he can trim back cuts back so, yeah yeah it's so unusual to hear someone adding and adding and adding because that's completely mm. the reverse of what most people experience which is like oh yeah. my gosh i've got to get it short i've got to cut it down but it, like i say, it's what i've been doing and i, I find it really really handy because I'm, I'm doing that thing of not not worrying too much about the the dressing you know the um uh I, i'm really concentrating on the story and the theme and, and character and then going back and writing a nicer version of it thinking more about the process thinking more about things like i do like a um a nature pass on my ones because you know we're uh, okay. in a rural area so I, I add elements of that just to sort of add extra texture uh, to mm. the prose and, and to the story. And uh, I found that really works well for me. For people who've never come across this concept, i.e. me, um, what, <laughs> when you talk, because oh, writing lean can mean so many different things, can't it? Mm. Is it? Is it more about getting the bare bones of the plot down and not worrying about descriptive words? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's about me, a, it's me, a race to the end. Is. I yeah. love that because that's mm. the thing that bogs everyone down. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. So you thinking there, of a you book, sit there turning over a sentence in your head, thinking, "How can I make this pretty? How can I make this, you know, uh, engage the reader and and make me look clever?" Exactly <laughs> the perfect sentence. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I don't worry about that. I just I just get down the basic stuff, and then when I read back, I I can think, "Oh, that's a bit clunky," or that could that could be that could work a bit harder. Or as I say, I, I will focus on specific things like nature or details or descriptions of rooms and and of course the other thing is by the time you're doing this the second time around you know your characters you know thematically what your story is about so you can when you're writing the description of a room or the de description of a uh, an environment or some kind of action you're then thinking more thematically you're thinking okay how can we keep this on theme how can we mm. keep this tied into the book Whereas when you're doing that stuff on a first draft, you're still kind of wavering about what the book might be about, what the book might, uh, you know, benefit from. Whereas second time round, you you really know it, and um, it's uh, it's it's. I find it works really, really well. For I me. love it. Do you know? For me, the way I visualise this in my head is it's like writing in layers. 
yeah, yeah, so, yeah. The, yeah. So yeah. the first, the first, you write the foundational layer, which is about getting the plot down, working out what the hell the story's <laughs> about, what happens to your characters, and get get through to the end. The mm. sec, and then you can do these r- kind of next passes. And I've got three written down here. We'll have to we'll have to formalize this in the academy because I like I love this. I'm going to try this because I'm in the you know I'm just starting this new book, yeah. so I'm going to try this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you talked about a nature pass. I think we should have a senses pass. Yes. We've definitely. talked about in the academy, haven't yeah, we? About yeah. like, you know, where can you add in sight, yeah. smell, sound, you know, touch, etc. And then a hint pass. Do you know what that right. is? Right. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because like the thing is, idea. if you know yeah. if you know the story, then you can weave in the hints and the like, bits of foreshadowing. Little bits of foreshadowing, you know. which you can only really do at the end. And and it's hard it's really hard to do that. At, whilst you're writing, especially if you're pantsing a bit, because you're not a clairvoyant, you don't know what's coming. So we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll we'll do that in the academy. We'll do a we'll do a, a a layering of your novel, then we come up with maybe five or six different methodologies for actually like different things that you can think about to add. And it's worth comparing this to how other creatives work. You know, an artist will sketch out the. I mean, they start you know, with a round bit and some limbs and then they start adding on texture and detail and proportions and stuff. A musician might start with, I mean, watching watching Get Back, the Peter Jackson thing recently Mm. and seeing how Paul McCartney, get the song Get Back starts with Paul McCartney strumming a sort of a, a chord progression on his bass and you listen to it and you think, bloody hell, that's Get Back. He's inventing uh-huh. Get Back Before My Eyes. And then you see him bring other elements into it. And then Ringo starts on the drums. And the drums aren't quite right. And, uh, you know, and then Billy Preston comes in with a keyboard. And you're like, oh, you're so close. You're almost there. You know, how they're adding yeah. all these extra levels. Well, you all know this as a musician. Adding all these little extra bits of texture and layers on. It's kind of how, you know, other artists do it. So why, as writers, why do we right? feel... Yeah. I think we've just solved. Fully formed. We've just solved the entire problem for writers, Mark. This Thank is you the very last much, episode folks. of the podcast. We're done. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Good night. <laughs> You're ah. welcome. No, I mean, I think we have. I think we just sussed it out. Okay, quick. Let's let's copyright this, Mark. Uh, the bestseller <laughs> experiment layering, the way to layer your novel by the two marks. There you go. Because I think this is it. Like you can't write a. You, I can't write a song straight out the bat it's the most ridiculous concept to even think about it's all about layering it's about and you have to decide what you're going to start with you know sometimes i start with a drum beat sometimes i start with a bass line other times it's yeah. it's a guitar sometimes yeah. it's a melody which i always tell my folks when i'm coaching the music folks i coach melody is all about discovering your hook and i always say to mm. people write your melody before you start anything else because if you haven't got a decent hook or you haven't got a good melody then it's very hard to kind of wedge it in at the end and it's the same goes for book if you if you haven't got a decent book hook as we call it in the academy it's hard it, i mean yeah you it might drop out at the end and you might be like oh my gosh this is the next war and peace but mm. it's much better to have something at the beginning and and then you've always got that as your foundation and you and you jam around that as you're writing your book. So it's all about I'm, layering, isn't it? I'm sure we've discussed this before. We, I don't, Over 350 we episodes. Probably we probably have, have, but do you know what? It's taken <laughs> 350 episodes for it to suddenly go bing and it all just to come together into one simple concept that we call book la- Book layering or something like you that. Really, come up. Listeners, you really need if you really need to get to the YouTube version of to see how excited Mr. D is at this little breakthrough. It's uh, it's it's a delight to see. It's the Christmas it's, gift that keeps giving. It is. It is. <laughs> this is what I'm always like with ideas. Honestly, it's 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 hilarious. But 
No, I think, but you see, the thing is, it makes complete sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And it actually, you know, that is a massive aha moment for me in my writing because it relieves all of the pressure of having to write the perfect page of prose every time you sit down to write. It's like, no, mm. this is layer one, go for it. Um, and then it's ready layer two, ah, when you get to, <laughs> to the next, right? So that, there, it, I think there's all kinds of things. So, okay, folks, give us your ideas of what you do in your rewrites or layering as we're now going to call it um tell us tell us what you do what you what you add we've got nature we've got senses we've got hints is there anything else that you do we'd like to hear from you and um and we'll you know bundle it all into this brand new concept i love this wonderful i love it wonderful uh now the other thing that i found really fascinating on the same kind of theme is that um mia might said that she might write twenty five thousand words for a first draft how how brilliant how liberating is that yeah, yeah that's yeah, like yeah. A, a quarter of what most people or a third of what most people typically are aiming for that feels a lot easier doesn't it that's like half half of one feels of our achievable. outlines i mean that's one of our outlines isn't it mark yeah <laughs> stop it <laughs> had to get it in there before the end of the year but that that feels good for me. I, I like the idea of twenty five thousand. Yeah, it feels achievable. It's lean, you know, and you've got this. You'll have the skeleton of something again. It's that thing of stepping back and looking at the shape of it and thinking, okay, what have I got? What have I got here? What's missing? What needs to be embellished? What's uh, you know what needs a little bit of meat on the bone? So yeah, that's um, it's totally legit. It's also easier when you've got twenty five thousand words to stand back and look at your novel as a whole. Mm. I think it's a lot harder when you've got a mess of 150,000 words, which I know some people have, and then they have to cut back yeah. to 75 maybe. I think it, it gives you a lot more options and it, it gives you, you get a lot less ta a lot less tangled. Because I think I always yeah. think of writing a novel a bit like a, a you know, a, two kittens with a ball of wool. It can just sometimes, you don't know where one end starts and the other end begins and ends. Yeah. And it, it, you know, I think having less words, but having finished your Fewer. book. Yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I think it's um, I think it's similar to almost thinking of your novel a bit like a a slightly extended short story, isn't it? And then developing well, it from there. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting comparison actually, because a short story tends to have one simple thread that you know you have one character, they have one problem to overcome, and within five thousand words or whatever, however long your short story is, they've solved it. With a novel readers expect more they expect three four five or more threads to sort of interweave and you know you have subplots and um, reversals and all those wonderful things that we enjoy in a long form story so yeah maybe your twenty five thousand word uh quick first draft is that one thread and then when you step back from it you go well look that character that character is doing something interesting. It doesn't really go anywhere. So let's see if we can take that character and weave it in and out of the protagonist's story and see if they can create problems. And of course, once you start tinkering with it like that, it does start getting a bit more complex and interesting and giving us the kind of thing that uh, that readers expect from a novel. So yeah, that's uh, again, that feels very familiar to me. I The book I'm working on, the, on at the moment, you know, fairly thin first draft, but I did have... Um, uh, you know, subplots for characters, but a couple of them went completely nowhere. And uh, I, you know, working on notes from beta readers, you realise that there's, you know, two or three characters that can definitely do 
with a proper sort of story arc. So you know, you separate it from the main story. You sit down. Uh, I I sort of you know sketch it out and think, okay, where do they end? Where do they start? What's the opposite of this? What, how can it how can it work thematically? And then start weaving it in. And that's exactly what I've been doing this week with this with this novel, looking at particular characters and thinking, okay, how can they work a bit harder? How can we bulk them out a bit? How can we um, you know have them make a contribution to the story that's going to be really satisfying for the reader and it's it's that kind of problem solving that i you know that i love about editing which is why i think i do prefer starting with a thinner draft i prefer to build them untangle i guess mm, mm. yeah it's really interesting i was actually coaching um someone this week who's working on a script that the hbo are interested in and mm-hmm. her biggest challenge was how to how to deepen the the voices or to make the voices more unique of her side characters. She said her protagonist antagonist, absolutely brilliant, but it was all these side characters that weren't actually really, they were very much bit part. And so that was kind of another level of layering. It was giving the side characters a more unique voice. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. You say that I've, um, I'm (laughs) Christmas movie. I'm reading the first draft of Die Hard. Uh, so it's the it's the draft which is very good. Oh god, I forget the name of the first writer on it, but it's before the second writer, Stephen D'Souza, came on board and started making changes to it. It's all there. It's like a thin version, not thin, but you know, it doesn't have some of the little embellishments that we love. So, um, and this ties in Christmas sweaters. You know, there's the moment where John McClane fights with one of the uh, German terrorists, and the guy falls down falls down the stairs and he breaks his neck. Hmm. And then John McClane puts him in the uh, uh, in the lift in the in the elevator and writes, "Now I have a machine gun, ho ho ho!" Which you can buy as a Christmas sweater, by the way. Which <laughs> I, I might order one today. Um, and, um, and the lift door opens, and you know Alan Rickman's character sees it. And uh, what happens is in this in the first draft of the script, he kind of covers it up and says, you know, make sure no one sees this. But in the second draft of the script, the whole crowd of, you know, hostages sees it and it just elevates it to another level. And there's so many little moments, like there's there are two brothers in the story because the first guy falls down the stairs, breaks his neck, has the bigger brother who's the loose cannon with the long hair uh, who, um, you know, goes absolutely nuts about it. And there's a whole scene with them at the beginning that isn't in the first draft, it's in the second draft. Little character moment where one of them's trying to unplug and plug things in and he just comes along with a chainsaw and cuts through all the cables. You know, that tells you so much about them as characters. That wasn't in the first draft. So it's it's that thing of the rewrite of looking for opportunities to make something better, looking for opportunities to, to take something and put it up to the next level. So, yeah, if you... um. If if you can dig out, I'll, I'll see if I can find the link, or uh, I've got a PDF of it, and it's one of these scripts, you know, that's available free online. If you're familiar with Die Hard, a bit of light Christmas reading for you. But yeah, that thing of taking something that you've got and seeing the opportunity to m- make it work a little bit harder—that's that's all the fun of editing for me. Brilliant stuff. And only Mister Stay would like pull out the script of Die Hard for his Christmas reading. I love it's it. A classic, <laughs> but it is Christmas a Christmas movie. I know. Christmas, yeah. 
Yeah. I know. I it never. It's funny. Everyone says it's Christmas. I mean, I've seen it, but it, it never struck me as a Christmas movie just because of when it's set. But it is. It's the thing that every family I know watches again at Christmas alongside all of the classic stuff like, you know, Christmas Carol and the snowman. It's like, oh, you've got to watch Die Hard. Brilliant, <laughs> brilliant stuff. Now, another thing that Mia talked about, which was very, very close to my heart, was our beloved notebooks. I've got, wow. to, got to admit, and I know a lot of people will have resonated with that. I do love a good notebook, Mark. I'm a bit oh, of a sucker. I, I get all excited. We've got this big store in North America called Michael's. You go in there and it smells of uh, of like smelly stuff. I don't really know what it is, but I, I head over to the notebook section. Even if I'm not thinking of buying one, I just like to head over there and just pick one up. And something something very special about notebooks, but I think particularly when you're writing a book. And I know that it's, a, it's something close to your heart as well, isn't it? Very much so. And actually, stay tuned, listeners, because um, we uh, were talking about notebooks with someone a few episodes ago and an author called Natalie Fergie, who's been on the show before. She's an unbound author. Uh, and she we, we got chatting on Messenger about notebooks. And so she's going to start using a notebook for her first draft, which is what I've been doing. And we're hoping to do a deep dive in the new year about Brilliant. what she's discovered and what I like. So we'll go into this a bit deeper, but I have a notebook for every different, I have a general notebook where if I have a phone call with a director or, or, or whatever, uh, or beta reader, I just put general notes in and, and, do you not have a do, do you not have a specific notebook just for director phone calls though? I mean, because no, 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 no. I have a, <laughs> I have a, I have a, I have a sort of first ideas notebook or or where yeah. they sort of go. That's my general go to. And then when a project kicks off, it gets its own notebook. So this is the notebook I'm using at the moment, oh, which that. is this tiny it's little beautiful. thing, which my daughter got me from Waterstones in Leeds, and it wouldn't, you know, it looks beautiful. It's tiny, so I, you know so I've you got filled like it in there. like yeah, yeah in like a couple yeah. of days. And, and it's interesting because you know you with my tiny handwriting, I get about hundred words between a hundred and hundred and fifty words per, per page, um, and it's good because I'm it gives me focus, you know. <laughs> sort yeah, of, uh, it's well, it's a also clasped as well. As well, I, I used to have a very small notebook uh, that I used to carry around with me until I discovered the delights of until I discovered the delights of uh, of bullet journaling. And I found this notebook in, in WH Smith in New Zealand. They said we're going back a many, many a year now, early 2000s. It's a little black one. Look, I've even got, still got it. Oh, the like the little the skin. Yeah, and I bought skin. that yeah, when, and I think it was because I was reading, weirdly enough, how cool is this? Travelling around New Zealand in an RV, we had the Lord of the Rings rough guide or Lonely Planet, and we actually based our entire trip over locations of Lord of the Rings. Oh, I'm so doing that one. Though. And and <laughs> just, to, just to bolster it up, I also bought the autobiography or biography, I can't remember which, of, of Peter Jackson, and so mm. got to read all about. But he said something, in his autobiography i'm sure it was that book that i read and i'm, I'm sure a listener will connect correct me if i'm wrong but i'm sure it was in there he talked about the importance of little notebooks so i bought one of yeah, these yeah. wh smith and then it evolved to this which is the big this is my bullet journal doesn't not very ornate but i tell you what you know the one it's like the one ring right this is the one <laughs> journal that, be, that beats them all because you index everything so you find everything that you ever need and you can put everything it's in there it's so yeah cool. there's a bunch of them there this one this is my daughter got me this one and i do appreciate it but i said to her 
It's a Mandalorian one. Uh, it's, it's a ring binder one. I said, I love it, but don't get me a ring binder one again because I'm not only am I left handed, I'm cat handed. I write upside down. Oh, interesting. And it's the, I, I, it's only when I see photos or video of myself signing something, I think, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? You're like break dancing, like break dancing on the book, are you? Yeah, so the left page is fine. The right page, I, the ring binder just totally gets in the way. And I That's funny because, you know, I got this one. Sorry, I'm going to have a geek out. I've got this one called a dot grid, and it's like ah. it's, it's basically a very large bullet journal version for work. Mm. And, and I want it desperately as a ring binder because it just doesn't open properly on my desk. So I'm completely ah. the opposite. I want the ring binder version of it. But yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. that interesting? Tell us about, mm. folks, tell us about your notebook fetishes. I mean, Mark and I are obviously <laughs> lost down this rabbit hole now. Um, but I'm kind of curious. I'm, I'm going to be putting together a bullet journal uh, course uh, for, I mean, it can, it's not going to be specifically for writers, but I'll be talking about, you know, how it can be used for writing and many other things in your life, because that's the point of a bullet journal is it doesn't have to, I've, I've actually got like notes from my new novel in here alongside phone calls and, you know, brainstorming and to-do lists is all in one book, um, which I love, which I absolutely love. But I'm going to do some, some work on that over the next, uh, over the next year. Cause I think it's really important for people to to work out, and this is getting back to obviously what Mia was talking about, it's about working out what works for you because yes. like we say in the academy, like we don't see the writer and say, right, we're now going to pop you in this machine and you've got to go through these stages to become you know, a successful author. It's about recognizing that every single person is unique and we all are kind of playing with this and finding out what works for us and what doesn't work for us, what we like and what we don't like. Um, so, but I'm curious to hear how other people use notebooks when they're writing. So we're not, we want to get away from computers in 2022 a bit more. How do you use notebooks? And maybe, um, maybe we'll read some of those out on the show in 2022, because I think it's something which a lot of people are really connecting with and um, not really talked about much in terms of like the process of using a notebook as part of your writing. So uh, yeah, send us your information via Facebook, Twitter, or go to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the contact button because that's where you can find Mark and I. We just sit here waiting for emails all day, don't we, We Mark? do. We just chat. We yeah. just sit around chatting, <laughs> drinking tea. And so, oh, we've got another email. <laughs> oh, email. Whose turn is it to read it? Is it your turn? <laughs> Brilliant. So we're not going to talk about uh, washi tape, but moving on with the adaptions, I just want to tell you, just for people who are interested, there's a thing called washi tape and you can actually, I actually, you can use it in bullet journaling. That's one of the things that people use it for. It's just, it's just to make things look really nice. Um, but adaptions, one of the other things that I heard from Mia's interview was that she's very, seems to be very drawn towards adaptions. And it got me thinking adaptations. like- Adaptations. Adaptations. Thank yes. you. <laughs> Goodness me, I've only doing this five years. Uh, adaptations. Now, the beauty of an adaptation is it's a bit like doing a, I mean, I don't want to, you know, say cover version because it, but it is, it's about taking the architectural plans of something that's already there, which must be so much more wonderfully easy to, to start something when you kind of know a very well, rough outline of how the story goes. There are pros and cons because yes, you have the shape of something, you have familiarities of, of characters and, and a story, but there are also expectations and people will be expecting things. So if you love the Nutcracker and you've seen the ballet or you have a favorite adaptation of it or a favorite version of it, that's very close to your heart that, you know, affected you as a, a child and you've grown up with it. And someone comes along with a new one. Uh, it 
can you know there you'll be sitting there with your arm fold arms folded going right come on impress me you know yeah very and what, good. And what Marie, Mia, Mia's done with Midnight and Everwood is she's taken she's taken just some of the elements of of the Nutcracker and made it her own, which I think is possibly the best way to do it. You know, just if there's something in it that really appeals to you, that really speaks to you, then take and it's in the public domain. That's important. Um, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Then <laughs> then run with it, roll with it. You know, make it your own. And of course, you know, this is where we see. Um, retellings of fairy tales retellings of bible stories retellings of myths and legends uh, a really really fertile ground for that kind of thing yeah. you know so you've 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 i mean disney does it all the time uh, you know they they take uh, ancient legends and myths and then and then turn them into uh, you know um familiar stories uh, but yeah yeah it's um i mean our own Julian Barr, who uh, is in, you know, the BXP group uh, on the Facebook group, you know, he he takes, you know, myths and legends from, uh, you know, Greek myths and legends. So you got the, the his Ashes of Olympus series, which uh, you know tells the story of uh, Aeneas, uh, and it's it's wonderful. And it's you know, you, you look at the old Ray Harryhausen stories. They took all those and they they mix them all up. You talk mm. about cover versions. This is like a mashup where you yeah. take a bit of you know. Uh, a bit of Jason of the Argonauts, and then you have a bit of Perseus, and you mash, mishmash them all up. You can, yeah. You know, it's not like the ancient Greeks are going to come and sue you, so you can have real fun with it. Yeah, and if you want to go completely out on a limb, you do what uh, Seth Graham Smith did and go for Pride and Prejudice and zombies. Zombies, and, yes. And of at course. that point, at that point, <laughs> all expectations are off. Do you know yeah, what I love about the Wikipedia off. entry for for that for that book that then became a sixteen million dollar box office movie is that under authors under authors it says seth graham smith and jane austen (laughs) i mean you know when i talk about like things that you don't expect that might come out of the book that you wrote like what would what would what would miss austen be thinking today if she were around and thinking well i never expected that one yes i mean that that's the thing you can incur the wrath of a fan base so you know if and, and and there are things like um I remember when uh, Anthony Horowitz did his re, uh, new versions of um, Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. Yeah. We were really keen to get, you know, the nod, the thumbs up from the Sherlock Holmes Society because that means something to fans of uh, Conan Doyle and, and Sherlock And he Holmes. did get them, didn't he? If I he remember did, right, yeah. he was yeah, he, he was did, the yeah. wasn't he the first author to be given? I don't I don't know about that, but I I do know that. Um, yeah, he. I do uh, remember when that book came out. It was a few years ago, wasn't it? Because I remember buying it yeah. for for Jen, and because she was a massive Sherlock well. Holmes fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely brilliant yeah. stuff. Excellent stuff. So, Mister Stay, um, lots of us to think about, and uh, it's it's always it's always wonderful having Christmas themed gifts. And the great thing about Christmas books or books that have a theme around Christmas is that you know they're not they, they're not just one hit wonders. They keep on giving. It's a bit like um, Slade's. Uh, I wish it could be Christmas every year. You can start marketing again every November. <laughs> and, you know, so a lot of people think, oh, well, no, I don't want to write a Christmas theme book because it has such a short shelf life. But actually, it's no, when you add it, it's a perennial. Yeah. It's mm. absolutely yeah. a perennial. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing to have in, in, in a writer's kind of catalogue. 
And I know a lot of people like to do Christmas short stories as well around this time of year, but um, yeah, brilliant stuff. So it was absolutely lovely interview from Mia. Thank you so much, Mia, for coming on the show. And if people want to go to Maria's website, it is actually, it's not Mia, is it? It's Maria, K-U-Z-N-I-A-R.co.uk. And it's a lovely wintry a lovely wintry website to, to, to see as well. a link in the show notes so you can Absolutely. find it. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. So, Mr. Stay, you've, we've got a few more days before Christmas. What will you be doing between now and uh, and that festive uh, day? Well, first of all, I'm going to do the social media um, because we've got some wins. Uh, we've got some lovely great news to, to round the year up. So I'm going to do that first, if that's Perfect. okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So uh, we've had some great activity and from some from some old friends. It's always good to hear from old friends at Christmas. Uh, one of them is uh, Mike Shackle, who has been on the podcast before, and I definitely want to get Mike back on again. Now, long-term listeners will know that Mike, uh, he told us he was on the verge of sort of giving up writing packing it in uh, and then he heard Jabra Crombie's first interview on the show and then he got a he he started writing again and he not only got a book deal he got a three book deal with Golance uh Joe's publisher in the UK and you know it's it's done incredibly uh, I mean I love them the fant- fantastic series uh and Mike just tweeted the other day he's just finished 900 pages of copy edits and he says note to self don't fudge things you'll get away with it uh, thinking you'll get away with it you get caught and it'll be noted in green and yellow and blue anyway he <laughs> says it's gone back to Golance so just uh it is just a proofread to come uh, he says my first professional contract is now done and delivered and he says i wrote the acknowledgements for book three and must confess i teared up an author's name might be on the cover but it takes an army of support to make a book happen and just to think that we've seen mike go from you know maybe giving up to completing that trilogy and i just know mike is such a fantastic author there's just going to be so much more wonderful stuff to come so congrats on that mike and yeah we're definitely getting mike to come back on when that third book is published in 2022 isn't it so great to see that i mean we've been doing this long enough now that we're getting to see these you know here we we hear about the author who almost gave up then it's the three book deal and now it's the completion of the three book deal it's quite amazing to to actually being living and running alongside these authors in one of those life cycle journeys that an author goes through and as i always say on this show folks it's about inspiring everyone else and i know that mike's journey will no doubt inspire a ton of people especially today maybe maybe you're not having the best best december maybe christmas isn't something you're looking forward to maybe you're struggling with your novel maybe you're thinking of giving up don't give up and mike is proof of that and i can't begin to tell you folks i mean we haven't shared every story that we've heard from but mark how many times do we hear this story now i almost gave up you know sometimes they heard the podcast or whatever it was that that kept them going and then amazing things can happen and uh it's important to remind ourselves of that. Next up, we've got WJ Kite. We had a spotlight with WJ Kite on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, he says, I've written my, I've rewritten my first book four times from near scratch to get it brand spanking correct. Uh, he's gone from 45,000 words to 95,000 words. The big rewrite of book one of the Border Reaver Chronicles is done. Time to edit. Let there be blood. <laughs> so, <laughs> Love big, it. Big congrats on that. Congratulations. That was absolutely brilliant. Uh, we've had 
Mark Hood. Mark Hood, we mentioned many times on the podcast. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's finished editing his War of the Worlds prequel, which I'm re- re- sequel rather. I'm really, really looking, looking forward to that. Um, so uh, that'll be out soon. But also, he was absolutely delighted to be included in the issue of London Reader magazine, which is Contemporary Voices in Creative Writing. And he's got a story called Tell the Bees. And there's his name on the cover of the magazine. Uh, and he's there. Is there with Jeff Noon, who is a fantastic science fiction writer, Jeff Noon, and a bunch of other wonderful, fantastic authors. But there's Mark Hood on the cover of London Reader magazine. So I've never been on the cover of a magazine. Have you, Mr. D? Uh, I have, actually. <laughs> of course you have. It was probably like, it was probably, um, I, I had my name on the cover of Crash magazine, which was a, a ZX Spectrum magazine. Oh my god. Do you remember gosh. that? Yeah, because I what? sent in I sent in the entire now talk about Christmas. Actually it was Easter, but we'll forget that. I worked out the entire left, right, up, down for a, a fireman adventure game and I sent <laughs> into Crash magazine and I got my name in lights. I also wrote this is weirdly weird one. I once I once wrote um um for a magazine. Uh what was it called now? PC format, I think it was something like that. It was one of those PC magazines. And I wrote this article back in the day, back in the early 2000s about how to become an internet millionaire. Because they, they wanted an article about the dot-com boom and how because I'd set up an internet company. And yeah. uh, and that became then the front cover, which was kind of bonkers. They had a whole design and stuff, but yeah. I don't think I've ever had my name on the front cover though. Just stuff I've written. So, Mark, well done, mate. I mean, 200-word challenge, that's all I can say, folks. If you want your name on the front cover of a magazine, 200wordchallenge.com. That's that's obviously the, the secret. Brilliant stuff, Mark. More, Absolutely. More good news. Um, this time from Angela Nurse, who writes as Angela C. Nurse, writes wonderful thrillers and is a member of the BXP team. Um, she's been nominated for Best Author in the Crime Fiction Lover Awards. Wow. So uh, that's amazing. So a uh, big, big congratulations. Congratulations to Angela for that. That's a nominee. They'll never take that away from you. Even yeah. if you don't win, you're an awards nominee. So that's absolutely Yeah, but brilliant. what if she does win, Mark? What if she does oh, well. win? <laughs> we got bonus hobnobs. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic, Angela. <laughs> Superb stuff. And if if you are <clears throat> if if you are we were talking about cover versions earlier. Yeah. And this is absolutely fascinating. Christopher Wills, who's a member of the Academy, and we absolutely love Christopher. He comes to all my podcast craft sessions, and he's just brilliant. And one of the things he's been doing this year, uh, he's been um, typing out other people's novels. Now, you remember Joe Hill was doing it. I forget what novel he was doing it with, um, but he was basically taking someone else's book and typing it out and talking about how much he'd learned from just writing someone else's prose. And Christopher's done it twice. He's um, he's typed out the entire novel of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which was 153,000 words. He did that from January to June. And today he finished out typing A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, which is 220, nearly 229,000 words. And he says, you know, why? To improve the quality of my writing. Reading books is okay. I've been an avid reader of genres for 50 years, but you don't learn much about writing sentences and paragraphs by reading. And you would not believe how much you miss by only reading. Try it yourself. Type out that one chapter of a bestseller you have read. And we've been talking about this. He was talking about, you know, even in the best books, 
you know, you'll find typos, punctuation problems, writing mm. problems, head hopping, repeated words, all that kind of thing. So, you know, he's, he's comforted to learn that even best-selling books have those little errors in there. But it is, <clears throat> you will learn so much by doing that. So, you know, maybe try it with a, as he said, as he suggests, with a chapter uh, over Christmas and give that a go and see if it inspires you to, to tweak something in your style. Brilliant stuff. Uh, I love that idea and it's definitely something I'm going to try because I think that, uh, like you say, there's so many hidden gems in that and it's incredible what you pick up just by typing something else out. So brilliant idea, Christopher. And I know he's been working on something very exciting for next year and I'm sure he's going to be sharing a lot more of his journey with us in 2022. So looking forward to that as well. Excellent stuff. Brilliant. Well, Mr. Stay, I think we better rush off and do that last bit of Christmas shopping, wrap those presents work out where the kids have taken the sellotape or the scotch tape <laughs> oh God, and uh, started yeah right uh, and the scissors um but we want to wish everyone if you listen to this a couple of days before christmas we'd like to wish you a very calm tranquil and peaceful run up to christmas because i think that's a very important thing to remind ourselves of this time of year when everything can get a little bit crazy and hectic and stressful yes folks we're talking about those yeah. relatives coming you know just Go with the flow, folks, and try and enjoy these next couple of days. And try and, if you get a chance, if you get a chance, sneak in those 200 words when you can, because that is like as good as a brandy or a quality street, you know, <laughs> when things are getting a bit tough. Just go and in, just go and indulge yourself and give yourself that time off, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, just go and do your 200 words and then tell us that you did it. Come to 200wordchallenge.com and enter the word count that you did for that day. And we'll add it to our ever growing total which i will announce mark i think at the end of this year i'll tell you where we're at with our millions of words that have been submitted is absolutely incredible so congratulations to everyone else as well this year all our 200 word challenges the thousands of you out there doing your 200 words a day well done for absolutely knocking out of the park this year and, and and writing probably more words than you could ever imagine and we are incredibly proud of every single one of you so uh Get ready for 2022, folks. It's only going to get better. So, Mr. Stay, I I will bid you a very good Christmas. We'll be back next week where we're going to be having the Christmas special. Um, which so get get your uh, get your Ovaltine on and enjoy Mark and I chatting about nostalgia <laughs> in the 80s and probably the 90s and maybe even the noughties. Who knows? And um, it's a goodbye from Mark One and a goodbye from Mark Two. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.